Okay, so this morning we are continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, which Clive started a couple of weeks ago, and uh, particularly in these next few weeks, last week and uh, these weeks we're looking at Hebrews chapters 9 and 10, and considering the power of the blood of Christ. So I'm just going to pray and then we're going to carry on in Hebrews chapter 9. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your presence with us this morning. Lord, we want to thank you for that encouragement we heard at the start of the meeting that we can uh, enter with confidence into your presence. And Lord, we want to pray that as we look at your word, we want to pray that you would just kind of help our understanding. Lord, help us to appreciate the life, the power, the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus. Lord, I want to pray that as we look at your word and as we speak these timeless uh, words from Scripture, Lord, that you would, by the power of your Holy Spirit, make them real in our lives. Lord, that you would bring faith where we need faith, that you would bring conviction where we need conviction. Lord, that we'd have that experience like James speaks about, looking in the Word and it being a mirror. I pray the Word to us today would be a mirror that we could see ourselves, Lord, and it be transformed by the power of your Word this morning. So would you speak, would you bring revelation and inspiration and conviction by the Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. So I want to read this morning from Hebrews chapter 9, and I'm going to read verses 15 to 22. It says, For this reason Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness. So the passage here in, uh, from verse 15 kind of continues what we started last week by kind of comparing and contrasting the imagery and the, the, the kind of sacrifices found in the old covenant with the, uh, the new covenant uh, with Jesus Christ and all that he accomplished. And as I was preparing this talk, as I sat down and I read the passage, I, I was kind of asking myself some questions just to try and um, uh, to, to unpack it. And I thought it might be a helpful way to, to kind of approach it this morning. So I've got a number of, of questions to ask of this passage and answer it. And hopefully those will help us answer kind of one of the most important questions when we read Scripture, the so what question. You know, so what? What is it about what I've just read 
that makes a difference to my life? What is it that makes a difference to how I view the world? What is it that makes a difference to God? You know, so what? And so hopefully the questions we'll ask this morning will lead to that so what question and we can see the difference it makes in our lives. So the writer of Hebrews refers to two covenants. The first, or what we often call the old covenant, and the new covenant. So our first question has to be, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? So a covenant is basically a, an agreement, a, often a solemn agreement between usually two parties. And the covenant will set out the kind of rights and responsibilities of both parties and really the consequences for breaking the covenant. And uh, there are a number of covenants or kind of agreements like this that we find in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. So uh, God and Noah, after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah and seals it in the sky with a rainbow. He makes a covenant with Abraham and his descendants. God makes a promise to him, a firm commitment. And, uh, and then what's generally we kind of understand by the, the Old Covenant or the First Covenant, his covenant with Moses and the people of Israel, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And as Christians, we are partakers of a new covenant, the writer of Hebrews talks about here. So he says that the, the Old Covenant, God's agreement with Israel, with the Jewish people, he says, I will be your God and you can be my people, was not put into effect without blood. And the, the Hebrew expression for making a covenant is literally cutting a covenant. And we read kind of often uh, in the Old Testament it involves blood, whether it's kind of blood being sprinkled or animals being sacrificed. And there's a reference in Jeremiah to uh, um, a covenant being made whereby an animal was cut in half and the people would walk between the cut pieces. And it kind of, it sounds a bit strange, really, and we, I suppose in some senses we're left to speculate as to why. But for me, it says something about the, the strength of union we are talking about when we're talking about a covenant. It is like an animal being whole. You know, it was never meant to be a part, almost. So we're not just talking about like a short-term con- uh, contract, or I'll do this, you do that, and then we'll go our merry ways. It's something firm and binding and lasting. A covenant. It's about... Two becoming one, I guess, which is the, you know, I've put some wedding rings on it. I guess it's the, the form of covenant we're most familiar with today is the marriage covenant. The, that lifelong commitment that is reflected, that is a covenant. So the second question is, what was the basis of the old covenant? And to help unpack that, I want to read from um, Exodus 24. So a bit like, you know, Clive said a couple of weeks ago when he was speaking, uh, you have got a uh, I'm going to make you work this morning. We've got a few uh, passages of Scripture to help us appreciate what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So what was the basis for the Old Covenant? So Exodus chapter 24 and verses 1 to 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel. You are to worship at a distance. But Moses alone is to approach the Lord, and the others must not come near, and the people may not come up with him. When Moses went and told the people all the Lord's words and laws, they responded with one voice, everything the Lord has said, we will do. Moses then wrote everything down the Lord had said. He got up early the next morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and set up 12 stone pillars representing the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young Israelite men and they offered burnt offerings and sacrificed young bulls as fellowship offerings to the Lord. Moses took half of the blood and put it in bowls and the other half he splashed against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. They responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. 
Moses then took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So this kind of passage succinctly really describes the old covenant about God's promises represented in the law and the book of the covenant it's described and the people saying, we will do everything written in this. It's about Israel being God's people and enjoying his promises, his provision, and his protection. And in return, the people needed to um, devote themselves to God and to obey the law. And obedience or disobedience was reflected in blessing or curse. And it's, you know, remember, like we said last week, we can kind of, in light of the sort of freedom we have as Christians, it can seem very religious. But the Old Covenant is still about God's grace. It's still about God's initiative. It's still about God saying, I want to be your God, even though you don't deserve to know me, even though you're all sinners, you know, you deserve just to, to die, essentially. And God, in his grace, saying, I want to forgive you for your sins. I want to provide for you. I want to be in relationship with you. So it's still all about God's grace and initiative. But obviously the old covenant with Israel looked and felt very different to the new covenant initiated through Christ. So that brings us to question number three. What is the basis of the new covenant? So the new covenant is the fulfillment, really, is what the old covenant was leading up to. Um, So although it's new, it was predicted and looked ahead to in the old, particularly through the prophets. So we can, uh, we can read in Jeremiah chapter 31 and 31 to 34. It says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And even in that passage, Sorry, I'm, 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 by the wonders of technology, I'm getting a message to say, Steve, can you slightly lower the mic on your cheek? How's that, Dave? Sorry, I, I should be more professional. That should have been seamless. You shouldn't have known. Other than those who are wondering why Dave was standing at the back going, look up, look up. Is that better? Is that okay? So even in this passage, we get kind of God talking, showing about how he took the initiative how it was a a kind of a a lifelong covenant, how he describes it like being a husband to them. But it also points ahead to something future. So under the old covenant, the people had a law which revealed God's standards to his people. So they weren't in ignorance, like God was, I just don't know how to please God. You know, God revealed his heart and his will and his standards to them. The problem was that it didn't make them any more able to keep the law. And uh, you might well have heard me use this illustration before, but it kind of sums up for me the, the difference. So if you ever go temping bowling, okay, you know, uh, if you're having like an 80s retro weekend or something, you think, oh, let's go temping bowling. So if you go temping bowling, so you, you've got 10 pins at the end of the, uh, the lane, and uh, you get two goes to knock down all of these 10 pins. And so you bowl the ball, and it kind of 
goes there and, and sort of more by luck than judgment, it, you know, it might just kind of um, hit one on its own. And so one goes down. And then on the screen above the lane appears a picture of the nine pins that are left and a big arrow pointing to where you should aim your ball if you want to get these pins down, which is about as helpful as a chocolate teapot, really, because my problem is not knowing where the pins are. You know, they, they, there's 10 of them, they put big lights on them, there's a whole lane pointing to them. My problem is not knowing where I should bowl, bowl the ball. My problem is my ability to actually do it. And putting a dirty grey arrow on a computer screen, pointing here, does not in any way help me to knock down those nine pins. If I could, if I could get it where the arrow was, I wouldn't need this, because I've got them all down the first time, wouldn't I? And it, the law is like that. It says, you know, this is the standard, this is what you need to do but there is no kind of empowerment or enablement to actually do it. And yet here, there's this promise in the book of Jeremiah, written hundreds of years before Jesus came, that says a time is coming, not just when the law will be something external, but it will be internal. There will be an inner life. It will be written on hearts and minds. It will come from within. And there will be a new empowerment, to not just to know the law, but to do it. And with the coming of Jesus, and particularly through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, there is an enablement to be righteous and to act righteously. And so the, you know, this is part of the benefits of the new covenant. It, the new covenant, it is a, a, something internal, as well as forgiveness, as well as a different kind of relationship with God, as well as transformation through the Holy Spirit. So the writer of Hebrews tells us there is a new covenant and it is mediated by Jesus and sealed by his blood. So our next question is, why do we need a mediator? And essentially, it's about God's holiness and our sinfulness. God is so holy, the Bible tells us, he cannot look upon sin. And we are so naturally sinful you know, anti-God, we, our hearts are selfish, we are naturally independent. And it's just like we are, it's like matter and antimatter coming together, us and God. Or um, there's this little experiment I've been wanting to do for some time. Um, but I, I think, I'm not sure how the RSPCA would feel about this. But you know, they, they always say that like if you, if you kind of butter some toast and then you drop it, it will always land butter side down, won't it? Which I think is generally saying because that's the least convenient. I don't think it's anything to do with aerodynamics of the butter or the weight of it or anything like that. If you butter some toast, it'll always land butter side down. And they also say if you drop a cat, it will land on its feet. So I'd quite like to do this experiment where I get a bit of toast, butter side up and strap it to the back of a cat and then drop the cat to see what, you know, what is it that's going to hit the ground. And I kind of suspect this cat toast combination might just revolve in midair, not knowing quite what it's supposed to do. But it... Ah, bringing in some science in it. It'll be the cat because it weighs more, apparently. <laughs> you haven't seen how thick I cut bread. Um, <laughs> but this, this kind of meeting of, of kind of um, contradictory things, really, like matter and antimatter... Is, is like us and God, God's holiness and our sinfulness. So we need a mediator, a go-between. We need a, a man who can represent mankind, and we need a God who can represent God. And so we have Jesus, who is God 
and man at the same time, who we need to be God and man, who can shed representative blood for mankind, but who can present it in heaven as God, like we read about last week. So we need a mediator. So the next question is, well, why does blood have to be shed? There's a lot of blood about it in the Old Testament, let's be honest. Why is there so much blood needing to be shed? And I guess it's helpful to remind ourselves that with the Old Testament, um, God kind of knew what was coming. So sometimes it can, we can kind of read the New Testament and think, oh, well, that's like a development of the Old. You know, here's, here's kind of the, the sacrifice of uh, bulls and goats, and then we come to the New, and it's like, the, oh, you know, upgrade. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. But when God instigated the Old Testament systems and sacrifices and covenant, he knew what was coming. He knew that Jesus was going to have to come and shed his blood. The minute sin had been committed, that was the only possibility. So it's not that the New Testament kind of develops and builds on the Old, but the Old Testament is written with the knowledge of what is to come through Jesus, that Jesus would have to come and shed his blood. The New Covenant is only possible through the shedding of Christ's blood. So that's why there is so much blood in the Old Testament. So why did Jesus have to shed his blood? Well, in the way that the Old Testament preempts and is a shadow of the new, it can help us understand some aspects of it as well, which you know, is one of many reasons why it's not just enough to read the New Testament. We should read the Old Testament as well. So uh, um, you know, it kind of makes a difference having that knowledge, though, of the new. It's like when you watch a play the second time and you know that it was the policeman that did it, or you watch a film and you kind of know the solution. You see things differently. And we have, uh, you know, we can understand so much of the Old Testament knowing the new, but it can also add to it. So, for example, in Exodus chapter 12, we read about the Passover, where, you know, God is um, setting his people free out of the land of Egypt, and he's going to judge Egypt for their sin. And he instigates this thing called the Passover, and he tells the people, you need to sacrifice an animal and put the blood on the, the doorways. And, uh, and then when, when kind of God's judgment comes, you will be spared from that judgment. And uh, the imagery is then applied to Christ's death in the New Testament. So it's really interesting that Jesus' Last Supper, it wasn't just a Last Supper, it took place at Passover. It was the Passover meal, this meal to commemorate blood saving Israel from God's judgment just before Jesus came to shed his blood to save the earth from God's judgment. But also Paul goes so far as to say this in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And so suddenly all that imagery, all that narrative from the Old Testament in Exodus 12 brings a different dimension and a different understanding of what Jesus did. And again, let's get it the right way around. God knew when he instigated the Passover what was going to happen, that Jesus was going to come and Jesus was going to shed his blood. And just as the blood of the Passover lamb under the Old Covenant averted God's wrath and destruction, so does the blood of Jesus, our Passover lamb. Because you see, God 
is angry about sin. Sin, like we said before, it's like matter and antimatter. Sin is the opposite, the antipathy of God. And he is just and he is determined to wipe sin from the face of the earth. Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So when the first man committed sin, they experienced spiritual death. They were cut off from God. So God is just. Sin is wrong. Sin demands judgment. You know, there is a price that has to be paid. But God also loves us. Yeah, he doesn't want us to be enslaved by sin. He doesn't want us to live lives, you know, kind of for ourselves in selfish independence because that never works out the best, does it, really? You know, he wants to set us free from the power of sin. And ultimately, he wants relationship with us. But while there's that sin, you know, God can't come into relationship with us. So what does he do? Well, he could say, well, it doesn't matter. Let's pretend you didn't sin. Let's pretend it never happened. But doesn't that just diminish the seriousness of sin? Doesn't that say, actually, justice doesn't matter. You did something terrible. Let's just pretend it didn't happen. Let's just forget about it. You know, God insists that justice must be done. He says, this matters. I am angry about sin. There is a penalty that must be paid, but I am going to pay it through my son. You know, if there's, if there's, um, if I had a bar of chocolate here, you know, chocolate's good, isn't it? If there's one thing that's better than chocolate, it's free chocolate. So if I had a bar of chocolate and I gave it to Tone, then Tone might go, wow, free chocolate, woohoo. But of course, it wasn't free, was it? It was just free to Tone. You know, I still had to pay 40p to get the bar of chocolate, except I didn't pay 40p, I forgot, sorry, Tone. There you bar of chocolate. <laughs> um, you know, it's not free, is it? Somebody has to pay the price. And forgiveness and righteousness and the Christian life isn't free. It's just that God was willing to pay the price. And it means that we don't have to. And so hopefully, this kind of helps us understand, you know, what we're saying about um, we're talking about last week and what Paul says in Romans chapter 3 about the fact that basically someone has to pray to pay. So in Romans 3.25, it says, God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. So in other words, in the old covenant, God forgave people for their sin when they trusted in him. But the sins remained unpunished. And to satisfy God's justice, God could only do that because he knew that Jesus would come and would pay the price and would satisfy the justice and the judgment against sin. Jesus had to shed his blood to satisfy the wrath and the judgment of God against sin. But then there is another question, isn't there? That may be true, but why blood? Why not just death? And again, we can uh, find help from the Old Testament. So I'm going to read from Leviticus uh, chapter 17 and verses 10 to 14. It says, Any Israelite or any alien living among them who eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from his people. For the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood 
that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may an alien living among you eat blood. Any Israelite or any alien living among you who hurts any animal or bird that may be that may be eaten must drain out the blood and cover it with earth because the life of every creature is its blood. That is why I have said to the Israelites, you must not eat the blood of any creature because the life of every creature is its blood. Anyone who eats it must be cut off. So three times in those few verses is repeated this expression, the life of every creature is its blood. And the Hebrew word uh, translated life there is the Hebrew word nephesh. And it literally means soul. So uh, again, we've kind of talked um, a wee while ago about the fact that God created us as spirit, soul, and body. That our flesh, our outer life is our kind of natural, physical appetites. And our soul is that bit of us that, that kind of thinks and feels and wills. And then our spirit is where we're designed to relate to God. So it's, it's not just that um, our, our kind of physical, biological life is in our blood. What God says here in Leviticus is that our, our soul, our, our inner person is reflected in the blood as much as you know, our, our kind of hemoglobin and our plasma and all those other things as well. It's not just biological life, but somehow I, I suppose kind of spiritual life is reflected in the blood. And so it is more than just a kind of a biological um, bodily fluid. As when God sees blood, he sees the life of the creature. And so in, it's interesting in Genesis uh, chapter 4, verse 10, uh, in the account of Cain and Abel, God says to Cain, after he's killed his brother, Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And you know, it could just be that this is sort of a metaphorical uh, thing that, you know, your, your brother died and I know what happened. But there's something about this idea of. Life being in the blood. So the blood of Jesus was shed. He gave his life in our place because our whole soul was tainted when we committed sin. We were cut off from God. Our inner man is often used in the the New Testament to describe our inner sinful man. And that's what needed to be kind of judged and given to God. So to have a covenant with God, to have relationship, forgiveness, salvation, to be able to connect with God spiritually, Jesus needed to shed his blood on our behalf for our sin. So as well as saying it's a covenant, the writer of Hebrews describes it like being a will. So how is it like a will? Well, a will is about a future and about an inheritance. And the writer says... Uh, in fact, that there is an eternal inheritance. So what is the eternal inheritance? Um, often, there's a number of times in the New Testament which talks about Christians as being heirs and about kind of inheriting from God. Chapter 1 of Hebrews in verse 14, the writer says that what we inherit is salvation. Salvation is part of that eternal inheritance. And there is a, a sense, and just as there is a sense in salvation about something that we experience now, but also something yet to come. There is a sense in which the new covenant, our, our kind of relationship, our covenant, our binding agreement with God is both the means and the end because it's a, the way that we receive the inheritance, 
from God, but it's also the inheritance itself because, you know, so secure, so assured, so firm is the, the kind of relationship, is the covenant that we, you know, it's part of the inheritance itself. So the writer of Hebrews in chapter 6 and verses 19 and 20 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. So secure is it, he describes like an anchor for the soul that enters heaven itself. So the new covenant brings salvation for us now, but there's also this assurance of future salvation, of a fuller salvation. For now, there is relationship and there is forgiveness and there is cleansing. But in the future, the relationship will be of a different quality. And actually, we won't need forgiveness because we won't sin. And it kind of reflects a theme that you find throughout the New Testament, and particularly when you look at things like the kingdom of God, of, of now and not yet. There is an inheritance for now. There is a life for now. But there is something bigger and greater still to come. So Jesus reigns in our lives and has authority in our lives now. But there is time coming when Jesus will have authority in the whole earth. Jesus brings a measure of, of kind of healing and life to our bodies now, but a time is coming where there will be no sickness and no suffering and no sadness. You know, Jesus brings forgiveness to our lives now, but a time will come where he will make us unable to sin. We've got relationship now, but a time is coming where it's not going to be about, about faith and about trust, but we'll see Jesus. And it's incredible, and there is this sense of our inheritance that we enjoy now, and a fuller thing is coming of covenant now, but it's so secure, it's so binding, it lasts into eternity. So, you know, let's bring this kind of right up to that question I talked about at the start. So what? What difference does all of this make to my life now? Well, I want to say being in a covenant with God makes a difference. And in some ways, I wonder whether we can appreciate it fully by thinking about what it would look like without it. And Paul, in Ephesians 2 Uh, verses 11 to 13. Uh, It contains one of those great by the blood of Jesus kind of verses which helps us uh, understand some of uh, what Jesus accomplished when he shed his blood. But it says this, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, in other words, basically the Jews, remember that at that time you, who were non-Jews, were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. So apart from the covenant, we are separate from Christ. We are excluded from the people of God. We're foreigners to the covenant, to God's people. We are without hope and without God in the world. But through Jesus' blood, we have been brought near. So in asking the question, kind of, so what? It's really asking, well, What is it about having a relationship with God that makes a difference to your life? What is it that you appreciate about being in a relationship with God? And you know what 
all her answers might be different. You know, I, understand, I appreciate that God you know, understands me and still loves me. He knows me and he's for me and he you know, practically intervenes in my life and in my world to bring about his plan and his purposes. I appreciate the fact that he changes me and that he gives me a hope and an excitement about the future. You know, there's so many things that we could say. One of the most amazing things is God commits to this in forming a covenant with us, in this agreement. It's about God being dependable and faithful, that we can be confident and assured about one's relationship with God. It's a, it's a kind of um, funny uh, thing being involved in sort of setting up a school and in teaching children, because it kind of um, brings into focus how things change. And I know like, you know, how you teach and, uh, you know, methods of teaching and things like that have changed a lot and um, often for the better. But it's like some of the things that I learned at school don't seem to be true anymore. So when I was at school, Pluto was a planet. And apparently Pluto's not a planet anymore. So, uh, you know, I don't know how that happened, but apparently it's not. When I was at school, a billion was a million million. Did anyone else learn that at school, that a billion was a million million? And now apparently it's only a thousand million. So, you know, it's not just like Kit Kats and things that are getting smaller, is it? Even billions are getting smaller. You know, it used to be the case that kind of words like green and medal, they used to be nouns. They used to, you know, be describing words. And suddenly now we can just take nouns and make them into verbs. So if you heard about like, you know, greening Newcastle and greening uh, Wingrove and things like that to make more green. And uh, you hear kind of athletes at the Olympics talking about to medal. You know, oh yeah, I'm hoping to meddle. And it's like, you know, suddenly things change, don't they? It's, I, I don't know, in face of kind of changing truth or changing knowledge or accepted wisdom, actually we say our God does not change, right? Uh, it says in Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? God is entirely trustworthy and completely dependable and totally reliable. Does it make a difference being in a relationship and a covenant with God? Absolutely. So our final question before we pray and then we're going to take communion together. Our final question is, what is our role in the covenant? And uh, I guess, you know, to sum it up with one word would probably be obedience, a bit like in the Old Covenant. But it's in a different context. It's in the context of everything that I've said. Because let's remember the context of the letter, the writer of Hebrews is writing to a people who have turned away from Judaism and put their trust in Christ. And they're coming under pressure to go back. And so... That, you know, the, the writer here speaks about the new covenant. And I don't think he's just saying, you know, come on, you've made your choice. You're off the market now. You know, let's stick with your choice. No turning back. He's not doing that. And in speaking of a new covenant and an eternal inheritance, I don't think he's even just kind of saying, you know, you're going to heaven. You know, you can put up with this for a while because, you know, the future is better. I think there's something about him saying, you know, look at the quality of this covenant. Look at the relationship that you have because Jesus shed his blood for you. 
Why would you give this up? Why would you turn back to the old? Why would you turn back to the imperfect? Why would you turn back to the the temporary, the two-dimensional, when you could enjoy this incredible relationship with God? You know, such blessing in this new covenant that you have committed to. And the best way to enjoy all of this blessing is obedience. About trusting God that when he says, you know, you should do this, that actually, you know, that's the best thing you could possibly do. That when he says, you know, you should kind of, you know, give into the offering, that you should speak to that person, that you should um, do this right thing, that actually God's not out to make your life worse or to punish you, but it's the very best thing that you could possibly do. It's the source of blessing. When God says, don't do that, don't do that, don't go that way, don't think like that, don't speak like that, don't act like that, that actually it's not just some kind of tyrant trying to impose his will, but it is the best thing that you could possibly do for your life. Paul in Romans 12 says that God's will is good and it's pleasing and it's perfect. But there is, there is hope as well when we do mess up because we're living in the now, aren't we? Rather than the not yet. When we can still sin and make mistakes. And so, you know, the writer of Hebrews in this passage again talks about forgiveness and cleansing talked about last week. Part of our role is accepting Christ's blood was shed for us, of saying that, you know, when we mess up, we don't have to punish ourselves because Jesus has paid the price and we need to receive forgiveness and cleansing. Because of shed blood, there is forgiveness and cleansing. So um, I'd like us to pray, and there's a number of ways I'd like us to pray, but I, I um, let's ask us to stand and the band are going to come back up because we're going to pray a little and then we're going to take communion together and uh, communion is uh, when Jesus talked about it in the Gospels he talked about you know, the, the juice being the, the, um, the blood of the covenant and the bread being kind of the, the, his flesh and in, in, when we take communion it's a powerful reminder not just of the covenant that we have with Jesus through what he did but actually it's significant that we it's something we do together that actually that in in kind of being committed to God and him committing himself to us actually we as a people are joined and committed to him but first we're going to pray so the first thing that I think it would be good to pray is just to give us an opportunity to I guess to re-engage with God if we feel like we need to re-engage with God or if we need to you know, recommit ourselves like you know, married couples sometimes renew their vows to make a fresh expression of their commitment to one another. And maybe you're here this morning and you feel like, yeah, I want to, I want to get back some of that excitement and enjoyment of my relationship with God. I want to recommit myself in recognition that, you know, he's given everything for us. Jesus gave his life. He poured out his blood. He became a man. He is a lamb that was slain in heaven. And he got us. And Lord Jesus, we want to thank you that you took the price, that you paid it, Lord. We want to thank you, Lord, that we can enjoy a relationship with you. Not just a 
temporary, transitory acquaintance, but Lord, a covenant that you have bound yourself to us through blood. And Lord, we want to say to you this morning, Lord, we want to commit ourselves afresh to this covenant, to this agreement, to this relationship. Lord, we want to say sorry for the times when we drift away. We want to say sorry, Lord, when we cut ourselves off from the blessing through our sin and our disobedience and our independence, through our arrogance and our pride. Lord, we want to pray again this morning for your forgiveness and that you would cleanse our hearts, Lord. That that sin would no longer be part of us. The stain would not be on our characters, Lord God. But that you would set us free, Lord God, and enable us afresh to enjoy our relationship with you. Thank you, Lord. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you shed your blood. And that blood, Lord, is, is powerful. That blood draws us near. That blood makes us righteous. That blood that saves. Lord, as we come to take communion together, Lord God, I want to pray, Lord, that you would just minister to us by your Spirit. That you would minister your freedom, that you would minister that joy of relationship, that you would minister that confidence to us, you minister conviction and forgiveness and cleansing. In Jesus' name. So the band are going to play and I uh, want to invite you to come and to take communion. Uh, the people here are going to serve us. You just want to lead from the front and uh, kind of go ahead. You know, if you want to sort of pray with someone while you're doing that, by all means do that. Um, just uh, kind of appreciate that we can approach, like John said, we can do this with confidence. We can partake in Christ and in this covenant with confidence through Jesus' blood.